welcome back. I'm Paul Unger, editor of Placetech. Today I'm joined by Jeremy Hines, planning director at Savills, the real estate advisor. If you've listened to the podcast and video Jeremy did with us earlier this year, you'll know Jeremy is very interested and concerned about generating a really meaningful conversation in real estate about what is being done to prepare our towns, cities and buildings for more extreme weather events such as flooding and heat waves and of course helping to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, and we're joined by Tom Cheesewright, an applied futurist. That means Tom helps businesses think about change and how to prepare for disruption coming into their industries. Uh, more on what that means and whether I got that right later. <laughs> Uh, Jeremy, welcome back. Good to see you again. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, everyone in real estate is talking about ESG now. So, so what's the problem here? What's the problem? I think the problem is not that people um, are not talking about it, but the problem is there's a lack of a framework to understand what um, the what the problems really are and how uh, an appropriate response might be formulated to deal with the, with issues that are being faced. So it's a, it's a framework issue rather than just a knowledge issue. But I also suspect that we don't have a framework in place because some of the requirements to do something are actually very, very challenging. Um, at one at some point in this conversation, I'm going to talk about tomatoes, which I know Tom is particularly keen to talk about, uh, in order to illustrate the complexity of of the point. But um, I'll let that hang there for a moment. <laughs> well, it's only an hour from lunch, so it's already <laughs> making me hungry. Um, but yeah, Tom, you have uh, some uh, some interesting uh, evidence of tomatoes and pizza that we might. Uh... Yeah, absolutely. One of my one of my favourite ever projects. I get sucked into all sorts of things looking at the future, a lot of it around property and construction, both directly with organisations in that field, but actually indirectly as well. Most of my clients are sort of in the global 500. They obviously have a lot of property, whether it's owned, leased, or whether they're actually building it themselves or making the materials for it. So we get sucked into these conversations about ESG from every dimension. And I think that's probably one of my biggest concerns is around the, the life cycle conversation. I feel like we're starting to have we're aware now of acute issues down the line, but not doing preventative stuff now in order to address them early. It's a bit like with our health. I know at some point I'm probably going to have issues because I eat not tomatoes, but too many fried things. <laughs> um, but it's pretty hard to do anything about it now to get the motivation. So at some point I'm going to end up in an acute ward having something done about it. And the same is true with our property, I think. We need to be doing the the property equivalent of, of eating a better diet, more tomatoes, however they are grown. Uh, <laughs> or cooked. And fewer, or cooked and fewer bacon sandwiches. <laughs> okay. And so, Jeremy, tell us about this framework. What are some of the really big problems that uh, real estate needs to be grappling with now? Well, j just before coming to that particular point, picking up first on Tom's uh, 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 position about uh, something becoming acute, the, the point about a framework is to understand that we, we need to have a policy that deals with the issues in a way that um, is um, provides for consensus amongst everybody. 
Um, um, because we're dealing with uh, spaces, we're dealing with buildings, we're dealing with matters that affect people's lives directly and for a relatively long period of time. Buildings aren't built to be demolished in a matter of, of, of uh, a small number of years. That you know, we want buildings and places to live for a significantly longer period. And so, so we need consensus about what it is that this framework will look like. Now. My concern about about it is that the longer we delay having an informed debate, the more likely it is that we end up creating situations where individuals, either people or organisations, start to challenge what's going on or not going on and start creating their own policy positions. And those policy positions will be initially adopted by more radical people. And we're seeing plenty of evidence across the spectrum of that right now. And the more you have a radical policy response, the more you start to alienate and or you create counter radical responses. Um, and the longer it, it takes, therefore, and the more difficult it becomes to create a consensus based approach. So, so rather than just deal with, with it in a framework sense, we need to have two debates going on at the same time. One is looking at what are the, what, well, three debates really. What, what are the problems? What are the solutions? And of those solutions, which ones are we prepared to buy into and which ones work for, for us? Yeah. Um, and because we're dealing with, in, in, in this conversation, we're dealing with impacts of um, environmental impact, and which are characterized by habitat loss and um, global warming. You can't have a policy response that just deals with one matter and think that is a solution. And you can't deal with it really in just one local authority or indeed one country. It has to be formulated at a level that carries a very large number of both people and countries and okay. understands what's going on. So, so can you give us an example to illustrate what you mean by a, a radical response or a radical policy idea that some people might gather around just well, so we can picture it well so let's, well let's let's go back to tomatoes and understand why is that an issue so look at it in terms of um, of carbon so so if we're dealing with the carbon as the question we want to get to a point where we're saying we we don't want to produce carbon or we have net zero so if i want to have tomatoes on my salad in January, then it's going to be it's going to be um, a product that's grown in a greenhouse, probably in the Netherlands, almost certainly in the Netherlands, and it's a vast greenhouse. And the in order to produce that tomato, I've got a um, a, a fertilizer system which is hydroponic. Um, so I've got nitrates extracted um, from the atmosphere using methane. Um, I've got an artificially high carbon dioxide environment inside the greenhouse. I've got um, heaters to keep the greenhouse warm. Um, and then I've got to transport that tomato um, um, uh, in order to be fresh on the plate in Manchester. Um, it's got to be in a cold environment, which in turn will be brought about through the use of fossil fuels. So you can look at the tomato as a fossil fuel product. If we want to go into net carbon, net zero for carbon, we've got to look at every stage of that process. And we've got to say, are we prepared to um, change the way in which we grow and therefore fuel the system? And I know Tom's going to say something about uh, solar uh, production, which is fine, but that's only one part of that entire journey. So the framework and therefore the answers begin to look at, well, we have to transition 
we have to, we can't just suddenly say we're going to stop growing tomatoes, for example. The whole infrastructure and industry is based around it. So go back to seasonal food on the shelves. Indeed. But because there's, because you've got infrastructure that is created around this whole planet, it's not just tomatoes, it's cucumbers and it's peppers and so on. Um, it, a radical response, answering your question, might be, well, in that case, why don't we pay the farmers not to produce tomatoes in January, February, March when it's too cold and they need artificial heating and just leave it to warmer times and do it that way? You could say, why don't we, through the United Nations, buy up huge tracts of land, say the Amazon forest, and dedicate that to, and so you're, uh, so, so dedicate that to uh, uh, preservation. So you, you have, Different financial frameworks need to be con contemplated in order to get from A to B, where A is where we are today and B is where we want to get to in terms of net zero. You can't just do that with a policy framework that doesn't explore some of the key financial implications of the decisions that are being made or have to be made. I think I think my concern here, and it's in some way, you know, the, the growing of tomatoes is an incredibly <laughs> complex industry, the food industry. I do a lot of work in the food industry. It's incredibly complex. In some ways, it pales into insignificance against the complexity of property and construction because of the diversity of suppliers, the diversity of stakeholders, um, across public and private, individual, you know, whether it's you know, from your tenants, the people walking by the street, the people upon whom a piece of concrete might fall, the workers on the site, you know, the energy suppliers, the concrete suppliers going into it. It's an incredibly complex process. And my concern about a framework or trying to do a really, really consistent framework is trying to bring all those stakeholders together. And I think in some ways what you want is a, you either take one of two approaches, you say the market will define and so we've got some people doing this right now. We've got people building what they hope are going to be green buildings, office buildings, for example, and they believe they're going to be still of a good standard. You know, the market will treat them as a good standard in 30 years. And they're doing that and bearing the extra cost of doing it on the grounds that this will have, and this is an asset that will have greater longevity, that will have greater appeal to a particular group of organizations now, ones for whom ESG is a high priority. And increasingly it is driven by you know, actually shareholders who are acknowledging that there is a, um, a sort of material risk to both profit and uh, perception of the organization if the company doesn't take those things seriously. And so that you know the market's going that way now. Meanwhile, we've got loads of existing stock on the market which doesn't meet those standards. And actually, we're building a lot of stock which doesn't meet those standards, whether that's in residential, whether that's in office, whether that's in industrial. Um, and so you know, you, you do you say, okay, the market will sort this out, and eventually everyone's going to demand things with a particularly high standard with regards to climate, you know, carbon performance, or do we say actually we have to regulate whether it is self-regulate through a sort of industry framework or actually governmental or even international regulation that says these are the standards that we you that you must meet. And to some extent we're doing that already. We have a set of standards for, you know, for 2030 and beyond. And do we you know rely on the standards to drive that progress? And my concern about that is just speed. Mm. You know, does the market move fast enough to meet the challenges we face if it is only reliant on the um, regulation, particularly, come back to property as a particular example, given how fragmented the value chain is. You've got people getting in, doing their job, getting out. And you know, while some people are on the hook for the performance of that building for the next 30 years, some people absolutely aren't. But the UK is placed, um, um, very well placed, in fact, to actually 
begin to understand how that fragmented um, basis of construction and, 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 and placemaking, we are well placed to address it through through the um, local government arrangements that are mm. in place. Um, so, you know, we've got a planning system that has been tinkered with for goodness knows how many times now. And, I mean, it's a very polite way of putting it. After, yeah, it's being recorded. So, um, and, and and because because it's been tinkered with, it, it I think it's also lost its way. I think it's very difficult to understand what if you ask a planning consultant and a planning professional in local government what is planning about, you'll get completely different answers. Um, and um, and some people don't even know what, what to what to say. So, but I think we can empower our systems in the UK to deal with the fragmented approach and say we've got this regulatory framework. Let's recalibrate this framework to deal with these issues mm-hmm. at at this sort of macro level, um, and and let the market respond accordingly at its micro level. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the 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 market's very good at picking up. The, the direction of travel is very, very good at that. You don't want that to somehow disappear. But the market is also very good at ignoring the direction of travel. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's the, the case in point, isn't it? Because everyone's talking about it, but we're still building buildings the same way and building dirty buildings, let's call them. So why is that? And who is the onus on? Is it on the policymakers to set planning you know use the, the the carrot and stick analogy to to the, is it the planning sticks is it the market carrot what and why hasn't corporate real estate really taken this seriously yet from from you know the conversations that you have with clients and and people coming for advice is it just lip service no, I, 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 and I think Tom would agree. Actually, I don't think I don't think it is lip service. No. I think people are genuinely concerned. The conversation is credible at its core. People want to do something. The problem is people don't know what to do. And 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 and, and you're right, Tom. If you've got people who are making um, strenuous efforts to deal with it in terms of individual buildings and so on, that's great. But it's an individual building. Um, we need this to be elevated rapidly upscale. Um, um, so it's not just down to one or two individuals no. and funders behind that. And I think part of the problem is actually complexity. You know, just doing, for example, the downstream or rather the upstream calculations on carbon footprint of a construction process is incredibly difficult. Once you get into your sort of scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, you know, what is powering the diggers on my site? You know, where, you know, what sort of cement is being used in the concrete that we're pouring? Is the rebar coming from 50% recycled steel, 100% recycled? steel was it done in a blast furnace or an arc furnace i mean you know there's there's a huge amount of complexity here and i don't think we yet have the tools to do that analysis very easily certainly not to the point that it doesn't add an incredible level of friction and administration to the top of what is already a complex process and when you're trying particularly when you've got this you know i keep coming back to the in this industry there's a very sort of fragmented value chain people are lots of you know lots of people in it get rewarded at particular points and then they're out and then not really responsible for the lifetime value of the building. While that's the case, it's very difficult to incentivize them 
to actually take to to bear that additional cost. Let's be honest to get to recruit those additional skills, which often aren't out there. You know, you know, FPNA, financial planning and analysis people, the sort of people you need to do that accounting are thin on the ground, and um, people with the skills to use the tools to do that are thin on the ground. Convincing the people at the construction phase, the project management phase, even the architecture phase to do that additional work, unless they're going to be rewarded for it, is really challenging. And not not all companies. A lot of the what the Americans would call the mom and pop companies, which make up the bulk of the industry, they can't necessarily afford that. But also, there's there's a systemic problem in property that once a lease is signed, the landlord doesn't have permission to automatically go it over the threshold into the mm-hmm. tenant's demise and start asking for all their energy performance and telling them how to use. The you know what to do with the la- the lighting and the power so yeah. mm. um, very very complex and and difficult problem. But, but I think precisely because it's complicated, we ought to look at this. I think from a slightly different uh, perspective. The, the 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 trouble with acknowledging its complexity is, and this is why I think the answer to your question much earlier about why aren't things happening, is because it's so complicated. Everyone goes, oh no, I can't really deal with this, yeah. and 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 pushes it down the line. So so I think the way around the problem is to try and get some really easy, quick wins in and change it really really quickly, but from from another end. So you could going back to the the planning. I mean, going back to the planning, we could say, for example. Um, all new housing can't be you can't have um bedrooms with south facing windows or something so solely that when you get like we have had this year very high temperatures um you you actually create the circumstances inside a a house where people will get respite from very high temperatures mm. because we know that we now know and we've always known but we now experienced it in the UK that high daytime temperatures followed by high nighttime temperatures is what causes a lot of heat stress so you could create some very easy policy solutions that says that is what we are going to do. That's going to change the way in which we understand how we use our houses. That's not a particularly radical proposition other than the context that we don't currently do that. Yeah. So, so it's radical in the sense of direct intervention about what you cannot do at state level. And there's a natural reaction against the state telling you how you have to design. And, I, and the state has made many examples on design issues in the past, so <laughs> there's, there's form. But, but, but it's the lack of the debate yeah. that, allow, that allows the consensus of that would naturally, I think, flow. You could say all new housing has to have external Internal shutters or something. You, or you could say if you want to have windows on the south side, then you've got to have shutters. Or oh, you you can create solutions, but until you start breaking it down, until you deal with the address the, the fragmented components and start getting people to understand what you can do. Um, without that, I just don't think we're going to have the consensus to deal with it actually at the the big level and the. Uh, the 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 the, the uh, combined level. I think you're right. I mean, I think there are some. I think policy interventions are kind of the only way. You know, we have to have some policy interventions. And I think you're right. I think there are some quite simple ones that would quickly have a big impact. And you know, in some ways, by making by regulating on some specifics, you might start to change the more general mindset. Yeah. Sure, some yeah, people will, will approach it in a tick box fashion. Yeah. Okay, I've got to you know, let me find the cheapest shutters and screw some shutters on. Indeed. But actually, you know. Slowly, as you start to build up these things around levels of insulation, you know, personally, I think every, you know, most homes being built now should be energy self-sufficient. Um, there's no reason they can't be um, to a large extent. 
um, you know, if you start to regulate on those things, the marginal costs at the point of construction are still, and I might probably get shot down for this, but relatively small. You know, yeah. certainly for some of those things, if you're building a house to add shutters and, you know, right. be- better insulation and go for low U value windows, you know, those things are relatively marginal costs if you're, particularly if you're doing a large site. And in regulations, the only way we're going to get people to do that, partly because it's just inertia that stops them. It's we've always done things this way. I know how to do things this way. I've got a good deal with my suppliers. I can do it in volume. And, you know, why should I change what I'm doing unless I'm forced? And to? it's it's short termism as well, isn't it? Going back to that point, it's why we're not very good at saving, and you know, it's not we're not very good at dieting. We want the sort of instant yeah. result. Yes, yeah, the um, um, it's the father Ted thing. You know, he's looking at the two <laughs> the two cows, and like you know, very different between the small one close up and the the large one far away. It's uh, we I think David Spiegelholz is very good on this. You know, we're not very good at understanding large long-term risks versus small short-term risks and and again that's where policy that's where government has to come in because government should be the one looking at large long-term risks and, and regulating for it so are politicians guilty of that short-term view as well i don't think it would be a novel thing to say to say that <laughs> yeah absolutely you know the um you know the the fix the, the terms of parliament have in many ways defined the the sort of the legislative cycle, and it's a bit like you know we started to see particularly post uh, downturn post two thousand eight, lots of the company uh, companies I was speaking to would only make buying decisions if they were going to see return on investment in twelve to eighteen months. Well, only I'm only going to spend money. I can only spend money from you know my boss will only allow me to spend money if I will see return on investment in this in twelve to eighteen months. And so, you know, lots of long-term investments that would have been improved infrastructure, but we would have a long-term payback weren't made. And I think we're paying for that now. I think a lot of companies are paying for that now. And likewise in politics, you know, we've got to the point in an electrical, electrical cycle or electrical culture where people won't make long-term decisions because they're focused on whatever will, will get them through a next election. And it's why, you know, energy is a good example. You know, why have we not made the investments in energy infrastructure that we needed to, to avoid the situation we're in now? It's because it wasn't particular, you know, government's, ideologically or because they didn't think it would be politically popular or didn't want to spend the billions of pounds it required to build new nuclear um they didn't want to have the political fight with people who objected to wind farms um and they didn't want to spend the money on the primary research to get us to a point where we had effective energy storage technologies and and I I um, I accept that at Paul's point I agree with as human beings we're we're still wired up to be short term and immediate gratification all the rest of it and we have electoral systems that actually serve that same purpose. But if we had the conversation, if we had the debate at a level where we're going to say this is the framework, these are the things we need to do, then actually the political, the electoral framework would buy into that. Mm. So, so it would say it doesn't matter now. We know this is going to go beyond another five years and another five years. But at least the framework is there. At least the conversation is there, and that would allow the politicians to. Um, orchestrate um, their own positions on on individual matters, whether it be um, habitat loss, whether it be creating spaces, whether it be dealing with what type of concrete, whatever they want yeah. to do, they can at least do that within a, a, a understandable framework or context, and, and and it sort of takes the fear out of the debate, as it were. I mean, the really radical thing for them to do, which they won't do because it's an inherently political act, 
is to do what we've done with the Bank of England and do what we've done with the Office of National Statistics and it extracts climate policy out into a techno technocratic organisation that says, look, 99.99% of the world's scientists agree. We can see what the impact's going to be. Let's regulate on the grounds of, you know, we, here's a set of objectives. We've got to hit net zero by this time. Yeah. Um, and we want to, you know, improve our energy security. Uh, and we don't want lots of people to die from heat stroke or, you know, freezing to death in winter or starving. Right. What policies do we need? Here are the regulatory levers under your control. Let's stick it all in an office for climate change policy and, you know, take it, take it out of the political conversation. Yeah. But that would require a political consensus, which I don't see on the near horizon. The Bank of England is a great example of something that has, um, stayed through successive governments since 1998. It's been independent. Let's hand it to the experts. It was seen as a good thing, yeah. a sensible move. Yeah. And and, that and the, the big challenge facing it now, and the same thing would be true of an Office for Climate Change, is that the levers at the, at the disposal of the Bank of England are not sufficiently large to offset international forces that, we, that are causing our current situation. And so, you know, power effectively reverts back to government because control of interest rates isn't sufficient to control inflation anymore. Um, because we're in such a globalized economy. The same is true for climate change. Yes, we could we could become a paragon of virtue in the UK doing all the things we need to do, and we should, but we're still going to be reliant on national politicians to negotiate internationally to drive the global picture forward. A hundred percent, but we can't escape the fact that the impact is felt by you, by me, yeah. is felt, felt by us as individuals. And, and it's Yeah, and in, and in property, we could do a lot of mitigation that would offset that impact. We have to do a lot of mitigation to offset that impact. And, and But there are still other things we could do. I mean, uh, Paul, you and I have just come back um, um, not having gone together on holiday <laughs> by, by pure chance. We're both in Sicily. And we went to some of the um, uh, the oldest. I mean, that, that island contains some of the oldest buildings on, on the planet still, which is quite remarkable. But the urban environments that you were able to walk down, it's, it's 35, 40 degrees centigrade. Um, but you're walking in shade and, and you can feel the relief as you're walking down in a shaded street with na relatively narrow and what, what breeze there is sort of travels down this um, enclosed street. We don't have a similar approach in, in this country to dealing with um, uh, the, the weather events that we are now experiencing. And instead, we're still, we're still doing the same thing that we've always done. Um, and the, the reason why we do that, again, it goes, but it sounds like a bit like a broken record, but we don't have a conversation that says, what do we want our towns and cities now to look like? What are the materials that we're going to use to build the buildings that we're going to live in and are going to help us tolerate um, the, the environment that's emerging or has emerged, don't know. Um, uh, uh, you know as, as we've discussed before, um, the idea of spaces between residential buildings is is largely based upon um, post-Victorian Edwardian understandings of what is the appropriate space between buildings <laughs> to minimise the miasma. <laughs> it's just it's just, just silly. So, so given given the situation, and we we are seeing um, companies already going into another difficult economic climate and. Uh, cutting sustainability measures, um, they're facing you know, cost of living on, on on a grand scale, the cost of doing business when you look at energy bills, etc. So some, some worrying short-term moves there, things being factored out of projects. What can we do to bring people to the conversation other than 
you know, podcasts like this, the content we do on Place Tech and, and your own work, how can the industry and the business people from property listening in, how can they um, start to gather their own stakeholders and players around the conversation. And I think I think that is a challenge to leadership, mm. um, really, because it can't it can't be left for all the reasons Tom you've been saying, it can't be left down to individuals constantly making what might well be the right choice. Mm. There, there has to be um a, a sense of of, of national leadership has to be a sense of um, it doesn't just have to be political leadership it can be business leadership as well but there needs to be a sense where people can say this is the conversation we need to have these are the things we can do now and these are some of the changes we might need there will be then outflows from that which would could include um, policy and legislative responses they could include financial uh, and taxation responses so it's it's how how do you start to generate that debate and create that the all the other flows of, of conversations that will be needed to change the way people operate so going back to tomatoes and I know it's not relevant to building a space but it is even if tomatoes growing tomatoes is a very complicated process um if that's complicated then everything else is even more so for all the reasons Tom you can say and does Tom you must come across the sort of change culture leadership challenges the internal politics of what what works from from your experience that you've seen I mean, I think leadership is really important. I think you do need a, ideally, a leader from the top who, if nothing else, creates space for change, who says that I'm here, to, I'm not here to dictate, I'm here to ask questions, I have an open mind, um, who gives people both the time and the confidence to innovate and experiment. Um, and so that sort of, that that change can sort of bubble up. And I've seen, yeah, I've seen great examples of, you know, innovative culture. I mean, still the one I refer to a lot is, is actually um, you know, Bromford, the Housing Association, who has an inno- you know, a full-time innovation team with a with a fixed budget, which is a percentage of revenue, which has who can um, who are, take ideas from tenants and from people across the organisation, prototype them, test them with a second party, come back to the first team, pro- like fully prototype them, test them again, and then if they're good, they roll out, and they do that constantly and it's becomes it's become part of sort of culture of innovation a part of culture of change but one thing i wanted to pick up on which I, from all the things i thought you said there which i completely agreed with the one bit that's missing here is an aesthetic conversation and this might sound a little bit hippie but what you said about how, how do we want our cities to look you know i think one of the the big challenges and this is probably true more in a resi sense than it is in a in a in a sort of um sort of corporate industry sort of office sense is that there hasn't been a consistent new aesthetic for British architecture? There hasn't. I haven't. I don't. I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but I haven't seen evidence of a, you know, a coherent movement, a coherent sort of architectural movement in response to the change of times. I'm thinking, you know, who's the new Le Corbusier? You know, who is going to say like we need? Here's what buildings that deal with climate change look like. This is how we're going to make them stylish. This is how we're going to make them appealing. This is what a vision for a future British city could look like. And it will be a uniquely British British vernacular 
Uh, and it could, it would have, I think, enormous support if it tied into particularly sort of younger age groups who are going to be the customers yeah. of these buildings in the future. Le, Le Corbusier, the famous British architect. Well, I know too you, little about architecture to name a British, a British equivalent. Uh, but but, but you, well, you, you, you never know. The timing of this might be in, interesting given um, uh, as he then was Prince Charles's um, interest on, uh, yeah. on the aesthetic. Uh, and I know he is maintaining in, uh, as king that he uh, won't intervene in the same way that he did. But there are many um, speaking for him who are strongly suggesting he won't let that go. Mm. Um, and I think if, if Wright were to be on his side, then it is now in, in, in the sense both of the rationale for what he was trying to create, um, um, uh, Poundbury and others, um, and also the, which is, which is an aesthetic uh, yeah, spot, yeah. but also his environmental point yes. behind it as well. But there's, there's an odd conflict between those two, I would argue. <laughs> I mean, do we want British cities to look like Poundbury? No. no. I mean, Neoclassical, pastiche. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, no. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. It's not very, very high-rise or dense, is it? Not, neither. Uh, but um, um, equally, you'd say, do you want them to look, um, and apologies to uh, people from Milton Keynes and, and those who espouse it, but uh, you know, do you want it to look like that as well? Mm -hmm. to, which, to which I think that many would say no, in no. the sense of it's a carbon um, styled um, yeah. city environment. I, I think it's an interesting point, and I, and I think in, this, in the social media age, having things that people can latch onto that can be shared, that are visual, that you can easily grasp, a diagram, an image, something people can picture and have an opinion on, as they do with architecture. Yeah. But, but the concept yes. architecture is very important for it to get public ownership and drive the policy. And then politicians may want to do it because it looks popular. But we've, we've got, the we've got the, you, taking your social media point, um, we actually do have um, the tools um, through geographical information systems and computer modeling systems to actually allow that debate to be at last um, visually presented using the um, uh, platforms of social media as well, whereas it's always been a words-orientated conversation, mm -hmm. you know, a local mm -hmm. plan or a development plan or some form of description of, um, because it's very difficult to have an, a drawing and convey the drawing in the absence of um, social media networks. So with those in place, that, that debate can actually take place. But I would think it should be taking place in the context of we need to design places um, and we need to design buildings that deal with uh, energy demands. Um, and we need to make sure that people can enjoy the external environment um, in a way that is currently not possible in some instances. So, uh, and that might be looking at um, continental European uh, ways of constructing cities. And, and towns, um, rather than looking at um, tall buildings with lots of glass and require lots of cooling down in summer, lots of heating up in the winter, um, it, which are very very expensive. Um, um, the, the, the trouble, the trouble with energies is it's not a classic um, um, economic product. If you put up the price of tomatoes, you might choose not to buy tomatoes, but the energy doesn't have no. a substitute. So, so we've got to deal with it. I mean, you either you either you either pay more or go cold. It, 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 there isn't a substitute for energy. So, so we need we need to move the conversation in a way that allows us every us being everybody. How do we use our spaces, our buildings, in a way? that minimises um, um, demands on energy.
um, as well as making them very comfortable and beautiful. Um, and, and, and that's a challenge. And, and I think that's, I think that aesthetic point is really important. It would be a really interesting way to engage people in this conversation, a, a much broader audience who gives it, gives us both that potential for a consensus, but actually the political power that it needs to drive consensus through as well. Yeah. Um, you, you need a weight of opinion to drive these behaviors forward. Great. Great. Really, really interesting. And we could have another uh, whole series <laughs> and talk about, you know, energy prices we've hardly touched on. But um, uh, let's let's finish with your your futuristic pizza project, favorite project. <laughs> yeah. and how, how did you grow your tomatoes? So I was, yeah, I was commissioned by uh, an organization to, to work out what the future pizza would look like. Very relevant to this conversation because a lot of what we looked at was influenced by climate change. Um, and so we're going to see probably the disruption of wheat growing. So we swapped out 30% of the wheat in the base for insect flour. Um, upset an awful lot of Italians. My Instagram was was <laughs> an unpleasant place to be for a while. Um, and we swapped out the tomatoes, ones that had been grown in, a hydro, in hydroponics, but in an urban farm. So using coconut matting as a, as a growing medium. Uh, were artificially inseminated effectively and um, were grown using entirely sort of solar power and water in a clean environment. So no Grown indoors. Grown indoors, yeah. yeah. But grown close to the consumer. Um, so actually you're not growing them out in the countryside or in the Netherlands and shipping them. They're actually grown in a warehouse behind the supermarket. And how did it taste? Gorgeous. It was very, very... <laughs> I have to say the, the best bit, the worst bit was the vegan cheese, um, which was horrendous but was all right cooked. But the um, the tomatoes were lovely, and the best bit was the base. I have to say, the insect flour was delicious, really nutty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, thank you to Jeremy Hines from Savills, thank you. and thanks Tom Cheesewright. Pleasure uh, for joining me today. I've been Paul Unger, editor of Place Tech. I'll see you again soon, folks. Thank you.